I just love 80s movies and I feel like this is my best self. Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast that recognizes that the hardest part of love is letting go. I'm Haley O'Shaughnessy. I'm Jordan Liggins. That was great. That was amazing. Thanks. Snaps. Snaps. <laughs> Jordan, do you have, who's your player who you keep thinking is going to get better year after year after year and you can't give up on them? Mm. That's really hard in the WNBA because they're all really great. <laughs> There's only 144 spots, so you're really great if you made a roster spot in general. So that's a tough question. You, like you can't be bad. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you have to continue developing. That's actually yeah. That that uh that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I do have one. Okay, someone did come to mind. I would say Jackie Young, who is a guard on the Las Vegas Aces and is playing for USA on the 3x3 uh, team. And she won most improved. She was the number one pick overall. So that's really hard, (laughs) a hard place to start from. But there are some parts of her game, her pull-up jumper, her driving, her decision-making that I'm just like, hmm, Next year, you're going to get better. I have faith. You are going to be a cornerstone of this team. They need you. So I have faith that you're going to get better. But she's let me down a couple years. And that is what we have today. That's what this episode is about. It's about faith and maybe uh, unrequited love because the faith is not um, fulfilled Mm. on the other end. We have a wonderful, wonderful writer with us today, Hanif Abdurraqib who has, Jesus, do I even have time to list his accolades? (laughs) He is a poet. He's, I first saw him years ago and I've been reading his works for a long time. He even sprinkles in basketball sometimes in his poetry. He just wrote a book called A Little Devil in America that is excellent. Everyone should buy it and read it and champion him. And at the end of the show, we'll say where you can find Hanif. But He's brought us that is something different for Spencers. Uh, it's more of a personal essay on the people that we hold on to and why and believing that they can change. This is starting to mirror a lot of my relationships. <laughs> so I think before we get into it too deep, here is Hanif. On draft night in 2020, There was newfound cause for excitement in the world of Minnesota Timberwolves fan, a world often drowning in apathy at best or outright despair at worst. Ricky Rubio was returning to the team in a somewhat convoluted series of trades. He had been dealt from the Suns to the Thunder two days before the draft, and then during the draft, he was sent to Minnesota, back to where his career began. There's a screenshot that makes the rounds from the 2009 draft that you've maybe seen. It's a photo of the draft board with three names in a row in order of selection and the three teams that picked them. In the first row is a fifth overall pick of the draft, R. Rubio. Ricky Rubio of El Maslu, Spain and Juventud Badalona. Maybe the most talked about player in this year's draft. Under Rubio, 
is Jay Flynn. The Minnesota Timberwolves select Johnny Flynn from Syracuse University. Then in the third row is the seventh pick of the 2009 draft. It says Stephen Curry from Davidson College. Drafted by the Golden State Warriors. Some would say that part of being a Timberwolves fan is making peace with draft mishaps. But here, I'm an optimist. Sure, in hindsight, there are what some might consider to be alarming lottery mishaps. But I don't think there are many that are more spectacular than other teams' misses. The Wolves could have gotten some of Brandon Roy's good years had they not traded him away for Randy Foy in 2006. And yes, they might have been a bit too seduced by the he does everything well but nothing great narrative of Wesley Johnson in 2010 when players like Gordon Hayward and Paul George were still on the table. But then again, can you blame the Timberwolves for picking Derek Williams second in 2011 at the time? He's going to be a very high level uh, all-star, multi-year all-star type of player in the NBA. A solid, easy choice of the number two. It's interesting that he's now teammates with Beasley, at least for the moment, because he's often compared to Mike. Because I've been sort of endlessly thinking about my own personal Rubio conundrum, it sent me down a path of thinking about other players who I, and others, have projected our own sometimes foolish pursuits onto. The players who we want to improve, despite all signs pointing to their very clear limitations. The players we want to see get more love from the public or from an organization. The many ways we use sports to dream ourselves towards certain unfulfillment. I've been a Timberwolves fan since I was a kid with the freedom to pick my own team, detached from the Knicks fandom of my home and the Bulls fandom of my neighborhood. When I saw Kevin Garnett play for the first time in 1995, I knew I'd follow him anywhere. If you lived in the Midwest, even if you didn't have cable, you could sometimes get some of the local channels from other portions of the Midwest, like WGN in Chicago, which played every Bulls game, a real gift in the early to mid-90s. And in February of 96, the Bulls played the Wolves in Minnesota. KG went for 16 points and 15 boards. The Timberwolves lost by three, but he was electrifying. Martin comes right into the bucket, couldn't get it. Rebound tap, Garnett inside, and he puts it in. Johnny, he's got all the makings of being really a great player. Ricky Rubio was a mystery to fans in the States. In 2009, there was a grainy mixtape that started to circulate around the internet, set to Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. Rubio, both blurry and a blur, darting through defenses for easy layups, throwing impossible passes. The video's title compared him to Pete Maravich, Shades of the Pistol, it was called. It was easy to get excited for the next decade of Rubio leading the Wolves' offense. But the comments on the YouTube video are a time capsule. Equal parts exuberant high expectations and immense skepticism. By the time Rubio made it to the States, it was 2011. The Timberwolves went 26-40 and 40 that season and Rubio averaged 10 points per game. The Spaniard here tonight. He tore his ACL in March and missed the rest of the season. He played five more seasons with the Wolves, and he never averaged more than 11 points per game, never shot better than 40% from the field. The team never won more than 40 games in a season and never made the playoffs. This wasn't Ricky Rubio's fault, of course. 
The teams were poorly constructed to win, and Minnesota was not a destination for free agents and not a place where big trade targets wanted to end up. But Rubio was the one constant in a losing franchise with a consistently drifting roster. Rubio was also a point of frustration because he wasn't exactly improving. He wasn't regressing either, but it appeared he was what he was going to be, an effective floor general who could make a good team better, but not do as much for a bad team. And the Timberwolves were always a bad team. All the while, Stephen Curry was lifting Golden State from the depths of the Western Conference, leaving Minnesota and its two draft picks behind. My relationship with Ricky Rubio during those years he was with Minnesota, and even now that he's back, is one of relentless and foolish optimism. This is the year, I tell my friends before the tip-off of every season. This is the year Rubio's shot starts falling, and once his shot starts falling, that'll open everything else up, because people are going to have to push up on him at the three-point line, and then, with his speed and vision, 23 points per game, 10 assists per game, easily. And then... After another season of shooting 38% from the floor, I'd get hopeful again. In 2014, the Timberwolves signed Rubio to a four-year, $56 million extension. And it seemed worth it at the time, like he was maybe just scratching the surface of his potential. He was still in his early 20s, and there was hope that he'd become a more effective shooter over time. But instead, he grew visibly weary in Minnesota, sometimes seemingly resentful. It aged him took the joy out of his game. By the end of that deal, the Wolves were ready to move on, and the Jazz picked up the final year of the contract in exchange for a first-round draft pick. This began his three-season stint away from Minnesota, spent enhancing backcourts in Utah and Phoenix, respectively, and, of course, once he unlocked the talents of a team's lead guard, his place on those teams became near obsolete. Good enough to date for a season or two, but never a player worthy of a serious commitment. Watching him this last season, I've been thinking about the hope that I hold in Ricky Rubio, even now. He's 30 years old and has played in the NBA for a decade. Still, here I am, thinking he's just one off-season away from becoming a different player. A foolish, emotional pursuit, but one that I felt I couldn't be alone in. I wanted to talk with three of my friends about their connections to three very different players with three very different arcs to test this idea this idea of longing for a player to have a different career journey than they actually did. Did I tell you that I I crashed Joe Alexander's draft party? Did I tell you that? This is my friend Ben. He's a poet and the only Seton Hall Pirates fan I know. When I asked him about a player who never made it in the way he wanted them to, he summoned Joe Alexander. And it's Alexander. Robinson comes oh, back, and it's a shot right at his face. Oh, my goodness. Who you might remember from his stellar 2008 NCAA tournament run and subsequent combine performance that shot him up draft boards before he fizzled out after just 67 games over two NBA seasons. I, I was walking home from my job at like a, a branding agency. I was a copywriter, whatever. doesn't matter. I was, I was leaving the office. And the office was right next to this like really swanky hotel in Midtown Manhattan. And I see, and this is draft day, I see there's a team, like the West Virginia team bus is parked outside of this hotel, right? It's called the Carlton Hotel. And 
I took note of this and I'm like, what the hell is this bus doing? Like, why is the West Virginia bus at this hotel? It, it's got to be related to the, the NBA draft. It just has to be, right? So I convinced my friend and I was like, dude, do you want to just like maybe on a hunch get dressed up tonight and just roll into that hotel and just sort of like, just sort of see? So we, we get dressed up. We show up. We go to the Carlton and we ask the, the front desk, like, hey, we're here for Joe's party. We thought, like, not saying the last name would, like, give us credit or something. So we were just like, we're here for Joe's party. And the guy says, oh, right this way. And he escorts us to this, like, really, I mean, it was a nice hotel, but the conference room was sad because the conference room was huge. And there were only, like, this is so awkward, man. There were, like, 12 people there. Like, we crashed a party that was, like, it was Joe's inner sanctum. Everyone kind of looks at us, but no one seems to care that much. Um, Huggins was there. Joe was there. And next thing we know, we're just sort of like drinking at, at this draft party. And here's where, I, here's where I get to the mentality question, because it's really plagued me. And I think maybe if Joe were being honest, I think it's plagued him a bit too, because I saw him at the bar and I was like, Joe, you know, congratulations. Like, this is your big night. N knowing he has no idea who, who the fuck I am. Like he knows I'm just sort of like, you know, one of many hangers on, I guess. I was like the first wave of hangers on in, the, in, in his NBA career probably. But I'm, I'm noticing that he's not drinking at all. And I, of course, am like drinking liberally because it's his, his draft party. And so I said, Joe, you know, like, why aren't you drinking, man? Like, come on, like, let's do shots. Like, this is your big night. And he looks at me with like the most somber and sort of like beautiful composure. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not drinking tonight because I want to remember this night for the rest of my life. And that was the moment, it, that was the moment where I was like, I respect this man so much, but I've got some questions about his mentality. <laughs> Because, like, J.R. Smith is not, like, like in the NBA, you need a little J.R. Smith. Like, you need to get wild when you just got drafted. And he was, he was not there, you know? He just wasn't there. Draft party sobriety aside, Joe Alexander is an interesting choice for this question because he'd flamed out in the NBA so quickly that he hadn't really had a chance to build up a currency of longing for what his potential self might have been. But Alexander is also an interesting choice because it could be said that he was given up on too quickly, a late bloomer waiting to happen. Alexander got no Division I college attention out of high school, played sparingly in his freshman year at West Virginia, and blossomed into an athletic marvel with a growing but flawed game. I, I don't know how many other folks it this way but like I'm, I'm drawn first and foremost to the narrative and the narrative of joe alexander always spoke to me like he wasn't highly recruited he was sort of just like a deep bench guy for west virginia and then huggins comes in and huggins is the guy who sort of like sees what joe alexander can be and has him just doing a ton of weightlifting and stuff like that transforms his body and suddenly now he's he's the man i do remember feeling like oh this guy is going to this guy's going to thrive in the NBA. Crafty, scorer, shooter. In addition to which, he, his best dunks were his putback dunks that are seared in my memory. I, I thought that Joe Alexander was in the NBA slam dunk contest, but he wasn't. 
right when I guess they were having fans vote, he created this video for like why you should vote for me. Like he really, really wanted to be in this dunk contest. You gotta vote for me. I'm the best dunker in the contest. I'm gonna bring the best dunks you've seen. I'm gonna bring the best dunks of the year. Trust me. William, look at this, folks. Oh boy! Vote. And and I think he knew maybe in that moment, like I think he probably was like, oh my, this dunk contest will be the moment when like I could actually have like a a real following, and it just it didn't happen. So I think you're right. I mean, it's you know looking at his numbers, they're not they're not awful, right? They're not like cut bait with this dude. And the fact that he was an athlete also makes me feel like why wouldn't you develop him a little bit? It, it feels it feels like a quick hook to me. Two years, really. I I definitely held hope for him to kind of figure it out. But like you said, I mean, there wasn't much time to hold hope. When we come back, two fans in love with two other players that went in two very different directions. Uh, My name is Courtney Cox. I am an assistant professor at the University of Oregon in the Department of Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies. Dr. Courtney M. Cox hosts the Sound of Victory podcast, and she's also an avid Mavericks fan. She's someone who complicated the idea of this question of players we root for despite their lack of evolution, not touching solely on the simplistic player you always rooted for to do better than they actually could, but a somewhat more tender perspective the player you've always wanted more for. More generosity in the public eye, a player you wanted to get a ring even when they were no longer pulling on the jersey of the team you root for. And I can relate to this too. When Minnesota failed its two prominent Kevins, Garnett and Love, there was a bit of a joyful ache that accompanied watching them raise trophies in other places. I wanted for them what the team I loved couldn't give them ultimately. Courtney offered up a player and a scenario that made me think harder about the emotional nature of this initial question of being connected to a player who might not improve at the rate you want them to. Yeah, so that for me is Tyson Cleotis Chandler. Put it up high, Paul Chandler! (laughs) You can put it up high for that man. He will go get it and finish it. Tyson Chandler as not only a membership of a championship team, which takes a little a little bit away from this idea of like not meeting expectations because that is the expectation. But I think that he just kind of has it all for me in terms of thinking about um, what it means to, to maybe miss a player or root for them regardless. And I think part of that is both him being just a defensive monster. I think it also has to do with the championship. And then I also think it's about how the Mavs gave him away, how they traded him away, not once, but twice in a really, to me, disrespectful manner. And I I think for me, he's one of the most disrespected Mavs players of all time, even though he's brought the city so much joy has been such an important part of the city. I think he's one of those players that immediately connected with Dallas. Dallas loved him back. And there was this really beautiful symbiotic relationship both on and off of the court for him. And so I have so much love for him. He leaves the Mavs, he's traded. And so it was a heartbreaking loss on a couple of fronts because You know, a lot of us thought with the core that was there in Dallas at the time, we could have gone back to back, not saying we would have won again the next year, but we could have gone back to the finals potentially the next season. So if you're on Twitter during free agency back in 2015, you maybe recall the DeAndre Jordan free agency saga. 
For NBA fans, it was one of the galvanizing moments of that year's offseason. Jordan verbally agreeing to a deal with the Mavericks, but maybe not. But even if he did, he couldn't sign until July 9th. But the Mavericks considered it a done deal and passed on other bigs and started the dream of building around their new center. For the Clippers, his current team, were still operating within what they considered to be an open window of championship contention and therefore weren't thrilled about Jordan's potential departure. What happened next is impossible to know for sure, but some people tell it and Mark Cuban was driving around town looking for Jordan. The Clippers had barricaded Jordan in a room by pushing chairs against the door. It made for great theater, the kind of excitement that the NBA offseason can really cash in on from time to time. But Courtney, as much as she enjoyed the shenanigans, remembers something else. Holding on to these players or understanding what they mean to us for a city, I think there's some value there because I think there was a way that Tyson Chandler was loyal to a team that was never fully loyal to him. And I I really hate that, that there's something in hindsight of regardless of what, we, what magic we thought DeAndre Jordan was going to be or the narratives that circulated around, well, he's just one of the pieces on the Clippers, but he can be the guy in Dallas. That being a sell to a player of this can be your team is something that is selling a dream both to the fans and to that particular player that you want. Um, and I, I just think that in hindsight now, I bought into the hype in a way, and we all did, right? Even the front office of the Dallas Mavericks. Introducing Tyson Chandler into the mix here and in this capacity does take us down a slightly different road. Tyson Chandler was what most would call a solid NBA contributor for a lot of years. He was an NBA champion, an all-star, he made an all-NBA team, multiple all-defense teams. But what Courtney is getting at almost fascinates me a bit more when considering the kind of fandom that attaches us to a single player, wanting an owner or an organization or a city to love that player as we might love them, to see in them the things that we see in them, which does, of course, get me back to my Rubio dilemma, that what I saw and see in him it's just not what he is or what he's going to be. And convincing myself that it's a failure of his circumstances and not a failure of my imagination. The flaws of dreaming. Still, I found myself wanting to talk to someone who could align with my very specific torturous existence with a similar player, specifically a point guard and specifically one that came to a franchise that was downtrodden at the time. A point guard who had big, shiny, high-profile highlights that never translated to in-game NBA success. My pal Casey is a Portland Trailblazers fan. And, at least for right now, they've got a point guard who has rescued the team and brought them to a return to relevance in a tough Western conference. But it wasn't always Dame time, and the cupboard in Portland was once pretty bare. Uh, the first time I heard about him was probably either the SI or the Slam cover. We're talking about former Trailblazer and Timberwolf, Sebastian Telfair. Two-point clipper lead, Telfair going to work. Look at him split a pair of defenders. Whips it outside of Butler, another three in the air. Bingo! I remember knowing that he was Marbury's cousin and thinking that that would be really daunting, but then there was that kind of like rumor or report that he and Marbury had played one-on-one and Telfair kind of lit him up. Um... And maybe that's in maybe that's in the slam story or maybe it's in the SI story. But I just remember being like, oh, man, like not only is he going to live up to being Marbury's cousin, he's going to have a better career than Marbury did. And then, of course, like, you know, it was kind of the his the stories of him playing at Rucker Park. Um, 
he just had this lore around him that I guess the only high, the only other high school player at that time who had that kind of national lore was LeBron. Telfair had the pedigree and the hype, but there were concerns. Concerns that were not unlike the concerns that hampered Rubio. Too small, can't shoot, will get knocked around in the NBA. The high school players that had made the leap to the league were, to that point, mostly big men or hyper-athletic wings. Telfair was a six-foot-tall point guard. Still, he was drafted 13th by the Blazers in the 2004 draft, a team desperate for direction and eager for a little fanfare. Yeah, I mean, to come into that the Blazers situation at the time he did was rough. Um, and I'm, he, he was, I guess... The year he was drafted, Stoudemire was the Blazers' point guard. Um, and so he had an example of a smaller guard with a skill set similar to his who was a much better shooter. But, yeah, I mean, to be dropped into that situation, and you you brought up the roster, and I'm looking at it now, and it's like there was a lot of dissatisfaction in town with the roster. There was a lot of dissatisfaction in town with the coaching. Uh, I mean, the year, you know, like Mo Cheeks was the coach and then he got fired halfway through Telfair's rookie year and then I think Kevin Pritchard took over and then the following year Nate McMillan came in and that was a disaster there just was like nothing worked for the Blazers it was very and I hate to say this to you knowing you're a Timberwolves fan but like it was very Timberwolves-esque in Portland <laughs> at that time just like not there was no no one could find an answer for what wasn't working another perhaps a greater parallel to Telfair's time in Portland and Rubio's in Minnesota is that the game slowly wore both of them down in very visible ways when it wasn't exciting for them anymore. The carefree nature of Telfair's game and the outward excitement he showed towards playmaking kind of started to vanish when he reached the NBA, when the game caught up with him and he couldn't keep up with it. He became a cautionary tale and then a journeyman, mostly popping up on bad teams and putting up below average numbers. And now, a cautionary tale again, mostly popping up in the news for gun-related crimes. It's hard in the moment to remember how much joy he brought to those who watched him rise out of Coney Island, dragging a legacy and a lineage behind him, or how much hope he briefly brought to fans of a floundering franchise. But that becomes, as you said, the entire arc, and he becomes this sort of tragic figure who is just weary. And, that, and that's a bummer, because when I think about Telfair's game... I think about the, the height, the way that he played in high school and the way that he looked and the joy that he carried with him and the way that he shared the ball with his teammates and made everybody around him better and the hope that I had, even before he was drafted for the Blazers, but like the hope that I had that this was going to be an exciting player that I, that I had watched since he was in high school uh, and that just didn't pan out. And that's also the thing, I suppose, the thread that runs through all of this, be it Rubio or Ben's brief brush with Joe Alexander or Casey's connection to Sebastian Telfair. I'm into fandom in most all of its forms because of how easy it is to sink into the potential of what a player can be, what a team can be, even when we are lying to ourselves or attempting to convince ourselves beyond the empirical. It is, in a way, like romance, and I am still a bit of a romantic. I have been the flawed person who someone has tried and failed to love beyond my flaws, and I have looked upon the flaws of a person and thought, sure, with enough love, I think they can change. 
The heart conspires with the brain to tell the best lies, better than the eyes, even better than the tongue. I've cheered for bad teams for most of my life. I've cheered for players who are talented but seem disinterested, or players who aren't who I thought they would be, or players I like who are just downright bad. And so for me, fandom is almost required to exist delightfully at the intersection of all those lies, an exhibit of illusions that offer something like hope even if that hope is swept away a few games into a new season. When there are zeros in the win-loss column, anything can feel possible. There's something about the human element of the game that comes back to life. At the time of this recording, Ricky Rubio is in trade rumors again. This was the way he was most consistent during his time with the Wolves being the subject of rumors, existing mostly in a fantasy of what sending him away could get. This was always a little sad to me. It seemed like Ricky truly loved Minnesota and felt like it was home. It was the first place he'd lived after he came to the States. And around his third or fourth season, the rumor mill became an infinity loop, constantly dreaming him out of town. His one season tenure with the Wolves this time around was challenging. He's hardened more easily frustrated. He'd gotten used to winning and, understandably, learned how to demand more. Maybe he's better off somewhere else, a place where he can end his career dedicated to helping a team win some playoff games. I'll always remember him most fondly in a Wolves jersey as a young player, a bouncing bob of hair and a sometimes spectacular pass cutting through an otherwise impossible angle. But I'll be happy to let him go this time if he does go. He deserves more, a franchise immersed in the present and not always fantasizing about the future. I'll be cheering for him in Minnesota or beyond. Well, that's our show. You can find Hanif at Neef Muhammad on Twitter and make sure to buy his book, A Little Devil in America, wherever books are sold. And please leave us a voicemail. Tell us what player you have these feelings about. We want to hear it. Our voicemail number is 502-874-4453 or send us an email at spinsters at bluewirepods.com to be featured on the show. This episode of Spinsters was written by Hanif Abdurraqib and hosted by Jordan Liggins and me. Our editor is Alex Ward with production by Alex, Isabel Jocelyn, Harry Krinsky, and Jordan. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Yales, and me. Hi, Jordan and Haley. My name is Rachel, and I'm a fan of the pod and the Minnesota Timberwolves. I really enjoyed your look into the Crystal Basketball episode, so I decided to get a little woo with my sports anxiety and cast an event chart for the T-Wolves. Growing up watching KG, I've become a very superstitious and anxious fan, so fingers crossed. Love you guys, and go Wolves!